This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu to purchase this book. Tithing and Dominion by Edward A. Powell and Rusus John Rushdooney. Copyright 1979. Published by Ross House Books Incorporated. Chapter 10. Economics and Taxation. There's an apt saying that if four Frenchmen are gathered together in one room, they will organize five political parties. This can equally be said of economists, with the exception that if four economists are gathered together, they will come up with at least a dozen definitions of their profession. Basically, the older definition for economics, as it comes from the Greek, is the one most applicable to this science. Our word for economic comes from the Greek word oikonomikos, which means, quote, pertaining to the management of the household, end quote. In this older sense, economics is the study of the management of a household, estate, business, nation, etc. It is the study of the management of the production, distribution, and consumption of goods. This means that economics begins with the study of ownership. It begins with ownership because whoever manages the production, distribution, and consumption of goods controls these economic activities. Ownership and control are indivisible because the control of economic activities implies ownership. To claim one is to claim the other. No man can claim ownership of an item if he has no control over its use. Neither can a man claim control of an item if, he, if it is owned and controlled by another. Economics, then, begins with the study of ownership. It begins with the study of the one who owns and controls these economic activities. Once we know who owns these activities, we can come to know how these activities are to be conducted. Once we know who owns the production, distribution, and consumption of goods, we can gradually learn the rules and regulations by which these activities are managed. But without knowing who owns these activities, we can never obtain an adequate understanding of how they are governed. Therefore, the first principle for the understanding of economic science is to establish ownership. It is solely upon this principle of ownership that we can establish any comprehension of economic law and of its effects. Ownership is the only basis upon which we can build any economic theory and understanding. Economics never studies in isolation individual and personal economic activities and enterprises. It studies all economic activity from the standpoint of an overriding world and life view. It studies all economic activity within the context of ultimate ownership. It sees all of man's economic pursuits in terms of a belief as to the nature and purpose of man, society, and history. This is the case because all men and all their economic activities are directed to one particular end. They are directed toward the purpose of pleasing their God through obedience to his law. All of man's economic pursuits are geared to this one ultimate end, which is to have fellowship and community with the owner of his soul. For this reason, the study of economics can never begin with the study of an individual or personal economic activity, but must begin with the basic world and life view as to the nature and purpose of man, society, and history. It must begin with the basic presupposition as to who is Lord over man and creation and what purpose and goal he has for them in history. This can be understood from God's creation of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Since God created the world by his law and upholds it by the power of his word, Hebrews 1.3, 
Both man and creation are governed and must live by, quote, every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord, end quote. Deuteronomy 8.3, Matthew 4.4. This means that if man were to have dominion, to rule or reign over himself and creation, then he had to know God's revelation of himself to man. Thus, Adam's task was to think God's thoughts after him by obedience to his law in order for him to rule as king within creation. Moreover, in order for Adam to develop creation's potential, he had to develop his understanding of God's laws of nature. By, by so doing, he would come to have greater knowledge of God and thus come to have greater fellowship and community with him. Every time Adam obtained greater knowledge and understanding of God, he became more of a king in creation. He also became more aware of his creaturehood and dependence upon God, since he had to become more aware that his office of vice-regency was wholly dependent upon God and upon his knowledge and obedience to his law. For Adam, prior to the fall, God's law was his means for his economic management of creation. All his economic activities stemmed solely from his knowledge of the laws of the triune God. Because all his economic activity was directed in obedience to God's revelations, all his economic activity was geared solely for the purpose of establishing God's name on earth in every area of life and thought. Every economic pursuit of Adam's began with the basic presupposition of God as Lord. It began with the world and life view that God had established and controlled the nature and purpose of man, society, and history to the end that they would glorify God. Therefore, all of Adam's economic endeavors were directed solely to please God and glorify him through obedience and thought and deed to his every word. We can easily see this principle of economic management in operation in Adam's naming or classifying of the animals. Quote, and out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. End quote. Genesis 2.19 God formed the animals and upheld them by the power of his word. In order then for Adam to classify them properly, he had to understand the law that upheld them and ruled over them. Thinking God's thoughts after him, Adam was able to name the animals correctly. He was able to classify them in accordance to their actual biological characteristics. For this reason, God allowed these names to apply to all these living creatures. Thus we can see that Adam's economic management of the animals was based solely upon his thinking analogically God's thoughts after him. Adam was able to classify, quote, every living creature, quote, because he was able to think and act in conformity to the word of God. His economic activity in naming the animals was directed to please and glorify God by obedience to his every word. As long as Adam adhered to the law of God, then Adam could continue to capitalize himself and become more and more productive. But once Adam refused to obey God's law, then Adam would decapitalize himself and gradually destroy that which he had. We can understand then that it is God's law and not man's efforts that determine what is productive in capitalizing and what is counterproductive in decapitalizing. Man can only capitalize himself as he adheres to the word of God, which rules both himself and his world. Failure by man to obey God can only lead to his destruction by decapitalization. He will eventually destroy both himself and his environment. Therefore, God's law and God's law alone 
establishes the means for man's economic endeavors because only God's law can capitalize both man and his world. When God created Adam in his image, he instilled in him the juridical principle of ownership. God, to Adam, was Lord of all creation, and therefore, owner of all creation. This juridical principle of lordship-ownership was the basic presupposition for Adam's thoughts and deeds. In the area of economics, this meant that Adam saw God as the manager, by his law, of his creation. The study of economics for Adam began with this juridical principle of ownership, that God was Lord. The fall did not abolish this juridical principle of ownership in Adam. It could not, because this principle is the basic presupposition upon which man builds his thoughts and deeds. Without this juridical principle of ownership, man could neither think nor act. What the fall did, however, was to make man believe that this juridical principle was no longer from God, but was of man. Man, because of his sin to be as God, saw himself as God, as the owner-lord of himself and creation. He saw himself as the lawmaker for reality. In the area of economics, this meant that man and Adam now saw himself as the manager by his law of creation. The study of economics for fallen Adam began with this juridical principle of ownership that man was Lord. The juridical principle of ownership is an inescapable category of thought. All men, whether reprobate or redeemed, see all things in terms of this juridical principle. To the reprobate, man is the owner of man and creation. It is man who establishes the purposes and nature of man, society, and history. He, in his own eyes, is Lord. He determines, in the area of economics, what is productive and fruitful by his own word. He is the manager of creation by his own law. For the redeemed in Christ, the Lord God of Scripture, is the owner of man and creation, because he created and redeems both. It is he who establishes the nature and purpose of man, society, and history. He, not man, is Lord, and all things are to glorify him. For the Christian, in the area of economics, God determines by his law what is legitimate, lawful, and productive, and what is illegitimate, unlawful, and destructive. For the redeemed, God, not man, is the manager of both man and creation by his word. There is an absolute division between the elect and the reprobate because of their faith as to who is Lord of creation. For this reason, Christian economic thought and theory can never be compatible with secular humanist economic thought and theory. They cannot be reconciled because they have totally diff divergent world and life views. They are at war with one another because each aims to glorify their owner, as well as indicting the other for apostasy. The Christian seeks to glorify God and condemn fallen man for his treason against the Lord. The humanist seeks to glorify man and indict God for his abuse of mankind. Each begins its study of economics from wholly different and conflicting concepts of ownership, and therefore of law. Hence they are wholly incompatible and divisive. The humanist economist begins with a presupposition that he can define the study of economics apart from the word of God. By doing so, he begins with himself as the ultimate reference point for what economics can mean. Since this places him squarely at the helm of being as God, any definition of economics that he posits he will consider binding upon all other men and upon society. He sees himself, in other words, as the manager of man and creation by his law.
i.e. by his definitions. His theory, or law definitions, of what constitutes economics then becomes the foundation upon which he constructs his economic models. In truth, these laws and models are nothing but an extension of his own ego. They are simply the outworkings of his desire to be as God. Because these theories and models are products of an ungodly and reprobate mind, they invariably posit man as essentially noble and righteous, and God as niggardly and reprobate. These theories see man as trying to create paradise out of the cruel creation of God's handiwork, or they see nature as normative and fruitful beyond limits, and God's law as the instrument which has corrupted nature and caused man untold misery. But regardless of what these ungodly economic theories may postulate, all have within them the same reprobate conviction that God is responsible for man's economic and material problems. All see man as righteous and God as a villain. Since each secular humanist economist sees himself as the manager of creation, each economist has his own definition or law for what constitutes economic science. Each sees himself as God, and for this reason, there, there are as many economic theories as there are economists. Economic theories abound because ungodly economists abound. Since each believes he has the right definition of economic science, each, therefore, believes that he has the right economic law for governing man and society. For this reason, each is a potential dictator and would be God over man. Moreover, because the desire of the state in an ungodly society is always to be as God on earth, it can always be expected that the state will gradually accept and attempt to implement those economic theories that most clearly invest it with the power and control over man. This is precisely the reason why the society that is ungodly will always see its governmental structure endorse and implement collectivist economic practices. The Christian economist cannot begin with the same presupposition that the humanist holds to. He cannot posit man as the author of economic theory and law and expect to glorify God. He cannot see the world through the eyes of reprobate man and expect that he will understand the outworkings of God's law word in creation. God will not bless those in any area of study who do not analogically think his thoughts after him by thinking in terms of his revealed law. If the Christian economist is to be successful, he must begin with the presupposition that God is Lord and therefore lawmaker for both man and his world. He must begin with the conviction of faith that economics can only be the study of God's management of this world by his law. He must begin his development of economic theory from the word of God, and that God's law is man's means for understanding how goods are to be produced, distributed, and consumed. He must begin with the absolute conviction of faith that because God's law rules all of creation, only God's law can be productive and fruitful for man and his environment. He must begin with the conviction of faith that God owns creation and that he and his revelation of law to man are the starting point for all economic inquiry and study. Whether humanist or Christian, the study of economics begins with a basic presupposition of ownership-lordship. Once we know who owns creation, then we can come to know how, by what law, the owner manages man and his world. Since this juridical principle of ownership is basic to all economic study, we can understand that all systems of economic thought and theory rest upon a theological foundation. All economic study stems from a theological belief as to who is God.
This means that economics and theology are indivisible. The study of one entails the study of the other. Therefore, we can understand that economics is the study of the application of religious principle or law to the production, distribution, and consumption of goods. For this reason, no man can plead ignorance when confronted with economic issues and problems. He, he cannot because the study of economics is essentially religious in nature, and every man is, by his creation in the image of God, a religious creature. He is either governed by the desire to be as God, or he is governed by the desire to be a creature in Christ. Since man is religious, he knows, in principle, the issue that stands behind every economic discussion. That issue is one of lordship. Who is lord, man or Christ? Whose law rules man in creation, man's or Christ's? For the Christian to claim ignorance in regard to economic issues is for him to claim ignorance of God, which means that he is devoid of faith and grace. Every reprobate wants to be as God, and, therefore, no two humanists can ever agree in principle on economic theory. Every ungodly man will want his particular economic theory to rule society because each will want to play God. But this should not be the situation with any discussion of basic Christian economic theory. All Christians have one God, one Lord, and his one law or word. Christians are in agreement in principle on economic thought and theory when they begin their discussion from the revelation of the triune God. They and they alone are in possession of objective truth because they are in possession of God's revelation of law. Because they do possess objective truth, they are the only ones who can consistently and progressively capitalize man and his world. They can do so because they have the desire by grace to conform themselves to God's word that rules and upholds all of creation. Only they, over time, have the power to consistently adhere to God's word that makes economic progress possible. God, not man, is the author of the law that created man in his world. It is his word that upholds both, Hebrews 1.3. Because he is Lord, only his law can bless man. If man diligently hearkens unto the voice of God to observe and do all his commandments, then his blessings will come upon man and overtake him. But if man refuses to hearken unto the voice of God, then God will curse man and destruction will overtake him. Deuteronomy 28. God, in other words, will capitalize man or decapitalize him in every area of life and thought in proportion to his obedience or disobedience to the word of God. Nowhere are these effects more evident than in the area of taxation. Since taxation and the claim of sovereignty are indivisible, taxation that is not in conformity to the word of God will cause God to curse man and decapitalize him. God will curse man because man is attempting to claim sovereignty over God's creation through humanistic taxation. If, on the other hand, man only levies those taxes that God declares are his by rights of ownership, then God will bless man and capitalize him because man has acknowledged God's law and therefore God as sovereign. Thus, we can see that humanistic schemes of taxation are destructive to man, while godly taxation is fruitful for man. This can be understood by examining the effects of godly and ungodly taxation. Whether taxation is godly or not, we must recognize that it is the claim of ownership, and for this reason there can be no area that is free from the taxing authority. God, through his taxing power, claims total ownership, because he claims total taxation on everything that man has, including his life. But God does not tax every specific item individually to establish his ownership. 
He taxes all things in principle. The Sabbath, for example, is a tax on man's time. One day in seven is the Lord's, and its payment by man means that he acknowledges his time as belonging to God. The poll or head tax, Exodus 30, 11-16, is God's means for establishing his ownership of man, the family, and the state. By paying this tax, man acknowledges his membership in God's covenant. He also acknowledges his family as being members of the covenant, since the man is head of the family. In addition, since this tax goes to the civil government, it reveals to the state its dependency upon God, and therefore its ownership by God. God's requirement that man give the firstfruits and firstlings of the flock and herds to the Lord is God's tax upon the earth and man's production. It reveals to man that, since all the products of the earth stemming from man's efforts are the Lord's, the earth is also owned by God. Therefore, this tax reveals to man that, quote, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, end quote. Psalm 24.1 Broadly speaking, the tithes are God's claims of ownership of all productive enterprises, all leisure time, vacations, etc., all social organizations, schools, churches, hospitals, etc., and so on, because they either pay the tithe or are financed by the tithe. We can see from the above that God does not tax each and every item owned by man. He makes his claim to sovereignty by taxing all areas in principle. This is why the failure of man to pay all of God's taxes is so destructive. When he fails to pay any one tax, he is claiming that God has no authority whatsoever in that particular area of life or thought. Failure, for example, of man to pay God's tax on time, the Sabbath, or pay the rejoicing tithe, is the claim by man that God has no claim of ownership on his time other than what he is willing to render to God. It is a denial in principle that God owns all of a man's time. This is why the failure to pay God's taxes is so destructive to man and society. When man denies God in principle in a particular area of life, God curses man in that area of life. Man simply cannot cheat God, quote, a little, end quote. He cannot do so and expect that the rewards of disobedience will outweigh the punishment for disobedience. If man denies God in principle, then man must be willing to accept God's denial of man in principle. God's taxes are all-encompassing, but are not destructive or decapitalizing. They are not destructive because out of all his taxes, only two do not tax a productive or capitalized increase. One is his taxation on time, which is the Sabbath and the festival or feasts, and the other is the poll tax. Neither are burdensome, and both are necessary for man and society. The poll tax is limited, and its fixed amount for all males 20 years and older prohibits it from being oppressive. It is a necessary tax because it goes to the civil government for the primary purpose of enforcing those provisions of God's law that God has assigned to it. It is not decapitalizing since all societies this side of heaven have sinners within them and their activities must be curtailed if society is to be maintained. The Sabbath and the festivals, or rest and vacation taxes, are necessary for man in order that he can reflect upon his creatureliness and his past which have been wrought in God. No man can build for the future unless he has a goodly comprehension and appreciation of the past. Man is a historical creature who needs to rest and think about his beginnings. Only as he understands the past can he hope to create a future. Moreover, time and time again it has been proven that man cannot work without rest and remain productive. 
Production always declines where men do not have periodic time off to relax and rest both their minds and bodies. But this does not mean that man works to rest or rests to work. He does both in order to build the kingdom of God. He does both that he might come to know God and have communion and fellowship with him. Therefore, we can recognize that neither the poll tax nor God's tax on time are destructive, but are in fact fruitful in capitalizing. The state, through its taxing power, also claims total and complete ownership over every area of life. But unlike God, who taxes in principle, the state claims ownership by taxing of specifics. It sees itself as only being able to claim ownership in proportion to its ability to regulate and control every facet of life. This is why taxation by the ungodly state always progresses toward the goal of taxing every possible possession of man. The goal of the ungodly state, whether it is consciously aware of it or not, is total taxation for total control, which means total ownership. This is the reason why state taxation in violation of God's law is so grossly destructive. Its concern is not in trying to establish an equitable scheme of taxation for all of society, which would be God's plan of taxation, but is directed for the purpose of establishing itself as God on earth. Since it considers itself as God, it considers itself as lawmaker for man and society. Because it believes that the, the only reality in creation is itself, it ends up taxing society so heavily that economic stagnation develops and decapitalization results. Inevitably, such taxation destroys society because the productive and most law-abiding members of society will become, one, more concerned with trying to avoid taxation rather than being productive, or two, will desert a sinking ship of state for more favorable surroundings. Such taxation is what sped God's destruction of pagan Rome and is now helping to bring God's wrath upon a Western, formerly Christian, civilization. This destructive principle of ungodly state taxation can be seen in every area of life. Businesses, charitable foundations, etc. are licensed a pagan form of taxation, which means they operate at the pleasure of the state and are thus owned by the state. Doctors, dentists, teachers, mechanics, plumbers, etc. are also licensed by the state. Except that in these latter cases the state claims ownership of a man through its claim of ownership of his profession or trade. Inheritance is taxed to demonstrate that the family is owned by the state. Since the state never wants any one family or group of families to become too powerful, unless they are part of the state elite, its taxation on inheritance is oppressive and destructive. The state taxes property and thus claims ownership of a man's home. The, quote, owner merely rents his home from the state. Property taxes especially decapitalize the elderly and poorer members of society because their incomes seldom keep up with a rising tax burden. Sales taxes decapitalize the middle and lower income members of society since they must spend a larger portion of their incomes than the upper income groups. The state taxes electricity, clothing, food, drugs, tires, etc. There is hardly any area of life that the state does not claim ownership of by its power to tax. The list of items taxed is only limited by the imagination and energy of the state bureaucracy. The result of such taxation is always the capitalization of the society upon which such taxation is imposed. They are destructive because they tax capital rather than the increase from capital. When taxation becomes more than the men will bear, 
They will turn from trying to be productive to preserving what they have. They will either seek to hide or sell what is being taxed or destroy it. A perfect example of how men will react to burdensome taxation can be seen from the Turks' taxation in the Holy Land. When the Turks taxed windows and trees, men simply enclosed their windows and chopped down their trees. This latter act helped to turn the Holy Land into the rock-laden desert that it is today. The tax on the trees, which were capital, simply destroyed and decapitalized the land. Ungodly taxation upon capital is always decapitalizing. All of the above-mentioned taxes are taxes upon capital, and all such taxation is destructive. They are destructive because they are in violation of the law of God, and therefore always bring God's wrath upon the society that exercises them. Moreover, a great many such taxes, especially the ones on food, medical care, drugs, etc., are hidden from the consumer. They are hidden because of their unpopularity. But these items cannot be allowed to be free from taxation simply because taxation is unpopular. It must always be remembered that the ungodly state operates from a religious presupposition that it is as God. For this reason, the state must tax every item within society. Therefore, it hides certain taxes in a variety of ways in order to avoid disturbing its creatures, citizens. Biblical law forbids such hidden taxation. When the state does tax capital increases rather than the capital itself, it is still destructive. Why? Because the state cannot confine itself to across-the-board rates, nor to what men can bear. Instead of taxing a fixed percentage rate on all increases of income, as God does, the state invariably ends up with progressive taxation on income. It does so because this is the manner in which the state can claim ownership of brains, ambition, and talent. This type of progressive income tax is also decapitalizing since it tends to destroy incentive among those who are the most economically productive in society. Moreover, the state finds itself incapable of stopping taxation at a level which men are willing to bear. Historically, this level has been approximately 25% of income, which is the percentage rate that God levies upon men. Once this level is exceeded, men tend to revolt in one form or another against taxation. Almost invariably, when this occurs, the state will resort to the most vicious, most destructive, and most hidden tax of all. It will resort to, to the reprobate tax of inflation. By so doing, it decapitalizes virtually all of society because it destroys the currency medium upon which society makes its economic decisions and judgments. As the currency goes, so goes society and the state. Inflation is the final act in the state's play at being as God. It is its final attempt to create wealth by fiat. It is the primary claim by man that he can create material prosperity ex nihilo, out of nothing, in the same manner that God created the world. In the area of economics, inflation is the ultimate claim of man that he can legislate whatever he desires into existence. It is his claim of being as God in the realm of political economy. And because it is one of man's primary means by which he claims to be as God, it brings one of God's most severe judgments upon man. God's wrath against such unrighteousness means the virtual destruction of man's political, social, and economic structure. The ability to comprehend the economic results of taxation rests upon our faith as to who is Lord of creation. Economics is simply the study of the application of religious principle and law to the area of political economy. 
since taxation is an economic issue, and because taxation and sovereignty are indivisible, the economic consequences of taxation clearly reveal who owns man and his world. It clearly reveals who can capitalize man and society. Taxation clearly reveals who is lord of creation because of its social, political, and economic consequences. The power to tax is the power to destroy, or it is the power to create. It is the power to destroy man and his society, or it is the power to create the kingdom of God on earth. Since taxation is unavoidable, the economic consequences of taxation are unavoidable. Our faith will determine whose tax we are willing to pay, and, hence, what blessings or cursings we will receive.